The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! And it just ha- it just happened. It just works, you know. It's just one of those things that can't be explained. I don't know. We we all got in a room together to record a song or two, and ended up with a record in a very short space of time. And then before we knew it, we had another one. Of accidentally made an album and accidentally started going on tour. It didn't, uh, <laughs> and then ten months later we had the second album. Hopefully, bands will put out music more often, like they they used to do, and uh, you'll get bands doing two, maybe even three albums a year. I'm raising the mizzen mast. Hoist it. Higher. I'm hoisting. I'm raising. I've got the... Uh, what Not is this, that way. What does this rope even go to? What does this connect to? You can't hoist to the west, you noob. I don't... Do, do I go south? Do I hoist to the south? I see the flock of... Seagulls. A flock of seagulls. <laughs> I see the, I see our bounty to the east. They... They ran so far away, I can, I can hardly see them anymore. I see our bounty to the east. Hoist the mainsail. I'm hoisting all of the sails called the mainsail, the subsail, the submainsail, the dom sail. I the don't, flash sail. The, the fire sail. <laughs> uh, prepare the nets. I've prepared all the nets already. Pre-prepared G- gather nets. the nets. Got all, got all the nets. They're in my hands. Uh, is that ah, prepared enough? You got, you got bankers' hands. You've been counting all money all your life. Hey, James. Oh, we're going into that movie now. Yeah, I've been counting money all day. <laughs> sure. Um, because I made these nets out of money. Because you told me to make these nets out of money, Paul. What a wait. I said make them expensive. I didn't say make them out of... Although I suppose if you made them out of money, yeah. that would be the most expensive. Oh, hoist no, the no, no, sail. But, uh, All right. Here, you, ship lad, take these nets. Ship lad. Ah, oh, sh- the ship lad ran off with the nets. That was like a million dollars in cash. <laughs> all right. Just help me reel them in here. Help me reel. Okay, okay, okay. It's a bunch of... Right, okay. That's why they call it the poop deck. They're flopping all over the deck, and uh, let's see, what have we got here? Whoa! Oh, God, kill it. Oh, God! Oh, 
Terrified. Jesus oh. Christ, is that the incredible Mr. Limpet? Get out of here. Oh, oh I'm terrified. Oh. I think it's the Limpet. James, what have we caught? All right, I think I know what we've caught, and it is definitely a case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of cowards in this seat. Silence is Socle, all that deserves. Socle, Socle bleu. <laughs> remember, remember the French? I don't. I never took it. Welcome to the Third Men Podcast. You know, James, after these skits, we always talk about how dumb they are. This time I'm going to say that was also pretty dumb. Yeah, but it was fun. I had yeah, fun. Sure. You had fun. Big dumb fun. Yeah. That's what you can come to expect from the Third Men Podcast. I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I am your other co-host, James Kaminsky, and we go over Jack White and Third Men Records history, people in the Third Men Records orbit, White Stripes albums, Tours albums, Jack White albums, the whole kit and the whole caboodle. Yeah, the caboodle too. And it's yours for the low, low price of nothing. Sometimes we even interview famous people who evidently listen to our podcast. <laughs> Apparently. And yeah. we're sorry. Sorry. James, I'm very excited about this week because uh, I've been preparing this one. I'm very excited. It's going to be a two-parter, but this is one of our fabled analyses and review episodes. I'm scared. Analyses and review of the Dead Weathers second album, Sea of Cowards. It's been a while since we've gone over a Dead Weather album. Yeah. The last time we actually went over a Dead Weather album was episode 11 of the podcast, James, your Whorehound analysis and review episode. So it's been a minute. Yeah. So I'm excited. We haven't had an album analysis in general in a long, long time. So uh, I'm excited to get into this one. And it's an album I know very little about. Yeah. I hope to learn a lot about. Yeah. We're going to go through each of the songs track by track. We're going to go over how it was recorded. We're going to go over why it was recorded, why the universe came together to give us a second Dead Weather album in the span of one year. Which, by all accounts, should not have happened, mm. and yet, it happened. So we're going to get into all of that stuff, we're going to get into how the band grew from their first release. Really some fascinating stuff I uncovered here, and uh, a little birdie on the inside of Third Man Records has uh, gone in and corrected some of the things that I found already, so really it'll be like a real-time stop breaking down. So we're very excited to get into this one. I grew to love the Dead Weather over time, and I think this album really helps solidify that love for me because, you know, I had to learn to love it a little bit. Yeah, people who originated liking the White Stripes and the Tours had a challenging time accepting the dead weather in a lot of cases. Not everyone, but in a lot of cases. Episode 79, we talked to Melinda Taylor, who just did not care for the dead weather at all. But that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So we're excited to get into this one, but... Before we get into all of that, James... Is there something we should stop doing? No. Is there something we should start smelling? No. Is there somebody on fire? <laughs> somebody is on fire, James. Has somebody poisoned the waterhole? <laughs> uh, is, is there a story that someone would like to tell? Yes. <laughs> yes, it's every single one's got a story to tell. Oh. James. <laughs> Don't wanna hear about it. Every single one's got a story to tell. Everyone knows about it. 
Do you want to explain to the people what every single one's got a story to tell is? Sure, I'd love nothing more, Paul. Every single one's got a story to tell is when people like you out there, listening audience, have an experience and tell us, and then we rebroadcast it to everybody else. Yeah. So that you're basically telling the whole world. James, we're going to start with a message we got from a regular listener to the show, Mr. Brett Garski, mm. or the Brett 3 Killed by Garski. Brett writes in to tell us about when he saw Margot Price open up for Lyle Lovett at the Red Rocks Amphitheater in Morrison, Colorado. Now, James, if you'll recall, later in this very episode, because time is a flat circle, we actually talk about the Red Rocks Amphitheater with our third man this week, Mr. Sam Sandak who compared it in size and relative uh, capacity to the theater in Santa Barbara where he saw the Jack White tour. Yeah, I forgot. He says he saw Margot and uh, says she, she played a brief set. She was super excited to be there. Her keyboard player was walking around before they took the stage, just taking it all in. And according to her Instagram, she had her costume designer, Elizabeth Nesmith, come in just for the show. It was a bucket list gig for Margot Price. She pulled out all the stops for the occasion, got the crowd's attention immediately when she stepped on the stage in a metallic David Bowie-inspired jumpsuit by her costume designer, who again was in attendance of the show. During Cocaine Cowboys, one of my favorite songs off of her second album, Price played, uh, that's me talking, not Brett, Mm -hmm. Price played the drums and sang while the band went into an Allman Brothers-like jam. Uh, She also took to the piano alone to perform American Made, which is another great song off of that album. So very happy that Brett got to see this show. And boy, Margot is uh, just keeping real busy these days. She's got a new single out. It is entitled Leftovers, and it's tremendous. It's so good. But there's no imagination in imitation of that a flattery. song uh, i'm a big fan of margo's our second every single one's got a story to tell is listener to the show Teresa horn who said that she uh saw jack in concert for the first time and she was very very excited she said she went to her first jack concert and was very excited didn't seem to be real Mm. Uh, she heard jack say if anyone would like to meet me and hang out we will be at the oxford hotel after the show And it is unclear as to where exactly she did see him here. I think she said Colorado. She's curious if any fans out there also heard him say that. She was unsure if he said it at all. She couldn't really recall too clearly. I could not find anything online about it. I did do some research and couldn't find anybody talking about being there. It's improbable to know at this point through recorded works because obviously nobody has cell phones. But I do want to say that Oxford Hotel is located in Denver in Colorado 
And this led me to learn that Jack White filmed the Would You Fight For My Love music video at the Oxford Hotel. So uh, that was 2014, but it's possible he was either talking about that or making reference to that. Uh, So if it wasn't a thing, uh, then maybe it was just a thing he said. So I don't know. But if anybody has any information on that, she would love to know uh, so that she can see if she's recalling correctly. Yeah, send us a message. We'll uh, we'll pass it along. We'll continue to be the conduits. And uh, that was, I think, uh, every single one's got a story to tell. Oh, and boy, did they tell it. James, are you ready to jump into this album analysis and review? What do you say? I've already put on my bathing suit, and I'm about to jump into this sea. Okay. All right. Well, we'll start with the obvious question. You're back already? Or the inception of Sea of Cowards? Oh, okay. Yeah. Her? So, James, Sea of Cowards is the second full-length Dead Weather record that was released in the span of 10 months. Not even a year. 10 months. And it's from a band that seemed more like an accident than anything else. So the question is, what happened? Why did this why did this happen? I can only guess that Whorehound just kept that train kept on a rolling and they just kept on a practicing. But Paul, please tell me. You're not wrong. That's definitely a part of it. But as Jack Lawrence, bassist for the Dead Weather, remarked that April, releasing two albums in the span of a year doesn't really happen these days. And he's right. It doesn't really for a lot of artists. And for those of you who don't know out there in uh, podcast land, the Dead Weather is Jack's third post-fame group Mm -hmm. (laughs) i guess you'd call it they are goth rock kind of yeah experiment band that's sort of uh, it's really a merging of jack white aesthetic and allison mosshart aesthetic who comes from the kills and jack and allison have a long history psychedelic gothic 70s throwback yeah i would say that's fair it's music that some people in the third man fan community find uh challenging i would say is fair to say uh, because it is so different. It's not like the Tours, which is sort of this polished, sort of kinksy-sounding thing. And it's not the White Stripes, the sort of stripped-down blues revival kind of charming presentation. Mm-hmm. It is, I don't know, I guess baffling would be the right word for it. I think I was baffled when they first came out. And if you'd like to hear more, again, about the band's inception, where they came from, we've done several episodes on this. You can listen to episode 11 of the podcast, which is the Whorehound Analysis and Review. That's their first album. You can also listen to an episode we did called Launching the Dead Weather. And we also did an episode about the Dead Weather's first tour, which goes into a lot of their inception. But the nuts and bolts of it is that they just so happen to be in Nashville, hanging around Jack's studio, and kind of put some songs together as a sort of a jammy, not a joke, but like a a fun sort of jam amongst friends, which turned into an entire group composing of Jack White, Dean Fertitta, who was uh, by by that time uh, well on his way to becoming an integral member of Queens of the Stone Age, Jack Lawrence of the Tours and the Greenhorns, uh, amongst others, and of course Alison Mosshart from The Kills, as we mentioned. So they were a group that happened by accident. And it's a sound that, uh, James, I think is pretty unique in the third man canon. Yeah. Would you say that they uh, took that jam and preserved it? Check. Check one. I think you're just jelly of my pun. (laughs) 
oh no i really i did think that was a lyric to something before i realized <laughs> no that is far that is far less <laughs> far less good <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, well, I guess we'll give a little bit of background here, but Whorehound comes out. I think mixed reviews would be kind of harsh, but certainly confused reviews Mm -hmm. to Whorehound, which is, you know, a collection of very sort of down-home kind of recording. Unpolished, maybe, would be the right. People going, oh, it's a new Jack White group. Why is he on the drums? Well, that's the big thing, right, James, is Jack White is on the drums for this group, which is kind of what makes it largely different. So uh, that's the other sort of things standing in the way of this being a quote normal jack project is that people go to a jack show to see him shred and uh they saw him uh shred on the drums which actually turned out to be great and a unique experience but there we are that's the dead weather musically speaking how will you define the universe of the band the blues i think the blues Uh, yeah i think it's However heavy it sounds or however moody it is to, to us, I think it really begins with the blues. And it's always the blues on stage, too, to me. So uh, that's the way I've always looked at it. And what does that word mean, blues? Yeah, to me, it means the truth. I mean, it's almost a synonym of that word, that, that they mean the exact same thing. I think there's an idea, a second definition or third definition of the blues that to, to a lot of people in the world means some guy on a porch in Mississippi or... You know, the Blues Brothers or some guy with a Stratocaster at a festival somewhere. But uh, I think all that's really just a commercial for what's really going on, you know. And there's something extremely deep about uh, uh, what, it, what, you, what can be done with it and what you can, where you can get to with it. But uh, to me, it's just looking for the truth. So, you know, from our tone here, our listeners can probably surmise that eh, Whorehound was greeted with confused enthusiasm from the fan community i think and mm-hmm. and it would be perhaps puzzling to hear that um in a world where the white stripes are not officially broken up and in a world in which the last rack and tours album was two years ago or less than two years ago why the dead weather was suddenly getting a second release you know the chronology up to this point had been you know the white stripes had put out put out all these records and then suddenly the rack and tours put out a record and then Jack's back in the studio with Meg. They put out a key thump and then another Raconteurs album. Okay, kind of getting a rhythm here. Now we get Whorehound. Okay, now he's going to switch it up and go back to one of these other bands. He didn't do that. Mm-hmm. He doubled down on the dead weather. And I guess that's what I mean by saying you're back already is because it was a surprise to some. It was bizarre that he was doing that. Like like you said, I was expecting him to go back to the White Stripes doing a every other year kind of deal, like one stripes, one something. Right. One stripes, one something. And um, when that didn't happen, it was, oh, I guess, I guess uh, we'll get this Dead Weather album. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it was confusing. Yeah. So sometimes we do these album analysis shows and the origin of the record has this crazy deep-rooted meaning or a star-crossed happenstance of Shakespearean proportions of some kind. But Sea of Cowards kind of boils down to one idea. They like playing together and they weren't done playing together. Hmm. This is via an interview with Pop Matters with uh, Alison Mosshart. The band's touring activities also affected the decision. As Mosshart points out, we wanted more songs to play live as we only had one record. So we wrote more songs on the road, and now we have two records. We could have waited until after the next kills, 
Queens of the Stone Age or Stripes record, but who knows when that would be. So really it was a matter of practical, we don't have enough songs to play. <laughs> well, that's hilarious. And yeah. also, I guess it makes sense. That they, I mean, the, the Raconteurs did it, though. They played the first album and like a cover or two. Sure. They also played some songs that would wind up on consolers. I guess that's true. Five on the Five, I think, was one five of them. Five on the Five, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. This, of course, reminds us that the White Stripes are still together at this time, and everyone is waiting for that next record. In fact, what we know about the mysterious Lost White Stripes record is that it very well could have started between Whorehound and Sea of Cowards, or was perhaps at least discussed. There were rumors swirling around about an album, you know, tragically, of course, I think a year or so after Sea of Cowards came out is when the news that the band was breaking up came out. So we'll get into what that potential last White Stripes album could have been. Again, our, our little birdie on the inside of Third Man kind of put the kibosh on uh, on the idea that there are recordings. But we do know it was at least discussed. And the White Stripes are still active because Jack was also working on the Under Great White Northern Lights release Mm -hmm. at this time. So the spur of the moment aspect that birthed the dead weather in the first place seems to be a factor here. Jack seemed continually excited by the dead weather's capacity for high energy, saying, I think this intensity is just something that comes naturally when we play together. When we started, our sound was already a kind of extremely heavy blues. No one said, okay, let's play like this write songs like this etc we wrote and it came out like that it's very interesting you have nothing to say or ask others things come as they come it's very attractive and very exciting it also explains why the second album came so soon after the first one so it's just capturing this lightning in the bottle that they got on the first record Mm -hmm. allison mossart emphasized that point to pop matters saying everybody's still doing everything i'm in the studio right now doing a kills record that should come out by the beginning of next year and dean fertita is going away to work with queens of the stone age everybody's doing everything at the same time that's how it's been since day one it's a real labor of love for everyone everyone's been doing all of their other work too and just forfeiting any days off or personal time for the dead weather and then jack goes on to say that's why we wanted to release this album so fast before the end of the tour this summer we would find it sad to let it sleep for two years in a drawer the project would have lost all of its meaning but i don't know again i never plan anything we could very well be back next year for concerts even an album who knows So that's kind of the nutshell here that we're getting at. What a nut. I have a feeling it really does. Like if Meg was to say, yeah, let's do it. Let's do another one. Then I think we would have gotten another Stripes. It's possible. Yeah. I think Jack was ready to lay down tracks whenever with basically whoever asked him to. So I don't know. And we're talking 2009, 2010. 2009 is Whorehound. 2010 is Sea of Cowards. And in that space, of course, the big thing is uh, Third Man Records launching. Yeah. And it launched with Whorehound, unexpectedly. So I'm sure from a business point of view, it would have made all the sense in the world to have another Stripes album. So I have to believe those conversations took place. I have to believe, like, he must have asked Meg. I also think that they were trying to get inventory into Third Man Records as soon as possible. True. They obviously have the previous albums, but the more they can release with Third Man through Jack, the better. Doesn't really matter what it is. Right because it will sell to the crowd that is shopping at Third Man. So the more stuff right. they could put on their shelves, the the better. And they had this already made. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes business sense also to just put this out. It was birthed from practicality, and they just decided this is what we've got. We don't have another Stripes record. 
Mm-hmm. We just don't. Yeah. So let's do it. And he was trying to capture that excitement and stuff. That leads us to our next little subtopic here is side project syndrome. The raconteurs have a real case of side project syndrome too, but... Anything that wasn't White Stripes at this point was really deemed a side project for Jack White. Yeah. One thing the band faced a bunch on the first album and tour was the the narrative that the Dead Weather were nothing more than a Jack side project to say that's 100% false is sort of disingenuous in a lot of ways because I would argue that the only reason you and I are talking about this record today is because of the Jack White connection. So in a lot of ways, I think it is a side project, but a side project that he poured all of his time, energy, and resources into. How come it's taking so long to cut a, a second album? Good point. <laughs> Very good point. Excellent question. Thank you. Um, I think we were just touring and busy with other bands that mm-hmm. you guys want to apologize for. Some Sorry, of your other bands that Jack. have been taking time away from sure. what I'm trying to accomplish here. It's yeah. <laughs> not very polite. We all have other bands, okay? It's not a unique problem. I mean, on other bands... Don't have all the, don't all have other bands, but this band all has other bands. It's not a, it is a unique problem to us, but not between us. That's hip hop. He would never call it a side project outright, but I think the third man community at large would definitely consider it that. I think the difference lies inside this notion of a side project versus the notion of a connection. I can respect this band as its own entity while also understanding that I'm listening to it because of Jack White. Mm -hmm. That made me open to it, and I think the Jack connection forced a lot of people to broaden their horizons and what they were willing to accept. Some people didn't. Yeah. This is via Pop Matters. Something that must become frustrating to the members of the Dead Weather is that their band is constantly referred to in the media as a Jack White side project, especially given that the rest of the band aren't short on record sales themselves. Moss Hart, however, thinks that she understands where the tendency comes from, claiming that, quote, everybody wants you to do this thing that you've always done forever. That's what they want. They want Martin Scorsese to make the same film 200 times rather than trying something different. I don't think people are generally open-minded when the person that they attach to this band goes and does something else. It's sort of annoying to everybody, but people need to realize that part of being an artist is trying as many things as you can. You want to push yourself and not sit in your comfort zone. I don't care if people want to call it Jack's side project. I'm quite secure in knowing what it means to me. It's not something that any of us take lightly, and we're working hard at it. So that reinforces the idea that uh, the band was dedicated to the band. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted this with gusto. Yeah. Elsewhere in the third man world, James, you mentioned inventory. This is where a lot of that comes in. Karen Elson was preparing her debut album at this time. Karen, at the time, was married to Jack White and was a musician herself composing her debut album, The Ghost Who Walks, which Jack produced between Dead Weather touring gigs. That album features appearances from the entire Dead Weather, with the exception of Allison, where we see Dean Fertitta playing organ and electric guitar on the eponymous track one, as well as Jack Lawrence playing bass on the record. Oh, man. 
preparing their debut was the third band girl group and Olivia Jean vehicle, the Black Bells, oh, at yes. this time, also produced by Jack. spring the white stripes under great white northern lights makes its debut so basically jack white was a busy boy yes there's a lot of stuff going yeah he's uh he's utilizing the studio space to its fullest yes and trying to get records out and i think as we heard in our olivia jean episode i think we touched on this a little bit but we talked about this notion that jack really was interested in a third man records girl group like he wanted to do a like a ronettes or something you know like that mm-hmm that he could put out. Uh, so he's doing that. He's producing his wife, etc. And the White Stripes have new product. I mean, Under Great White Northern Lights is no small thing. It's a massive live album project. And although it's not new material, it's a film. I guess you could call it the only real main canonical White Stripes live album proper. Yeah. I would say up until the John Peel sessions was officially released. Yeah. It's true. So this is from a March 10th Telegraph interview about Under Great White Northern Lights. It's exhausting just talking to Jack about his many projects. He says that the Dead Weather will release their second album in a couple of months, barely a year since their last. He actually neglected to mention that he also produced an album by his wife, which was announced online days after our interview. So Jack's running around. He's doing lots of stuff, trying to drum up enthusiasm and excitement for Third Man Records. Mm. So this is something that, again, the little birdie inside of Third Man dispelled in some ways, but I did see enough reference to it in my source materials and interviews and such that it's, it's it bears mentioning. A potential label dispute over the release of this album? Seemingly, and again, this is because our source inside of Third Man says that he cannot recall this. I tend to take that at face value and, and trust it, but there was a disagreement evidently, or at least referenced, over the release of this record so quickly after Whorehound with Sony, and so the band did make a switch to Warner Brothers. I don't understand a lot of the nuance of this split, but when you look at Whorehound on Discogs, you see both a Sony and a Warner Brothers release, and when it comes to Sea of Cowards, there's no Sony in sight. It's odd because Consolers of the Lonely, which was the album before Whorehound, there's no Sony in sight either, which leads me to believe that 2009 was the time Jack and Sony went into business for the dead weather, but clearly that business was in some ways short-lived. Whorehound is listed on Sony's official website, but not Sea of Cowards. Via Variety, upon announcement of Jack's Universal Publishing deal, White was previously with Sony ATV Music Publishing and Mushroom Music Publishing outside of North America, so Jack was connected to Sony. I think we'll get into that more on another episode, but... Each band member mentions it during the press tour. So clearly there's some kind of drama there that rubbed them the wrong way. Jack told this website called lesinrocks.com, We worked like animals for a year. We made two albums. We shot all over the world. And without ceasing, a mad energy was emerging from what we were doing. It's much more exciting than taking three years between two albums, which would have been the case if we decided not to continue the momentum. The only reason we do all this music is because it has meaning for us, because it attracts us, not because a label or a manager pushes us to do it to make more money. Allison then told Pop Matters, The decision 
decision to put the second record out was like hell, groans Moss Hart. Why, when you've done something that you're proud of, do you have to sit on it for a year? So it makes sense for it to come out, so everyone's ready for it. And then LJ told the Riverfront Times, we couldn't stop it, really. I think that's why the record happened so quickly. It's not like a choice by anyone, especially the label or anything like that. It's coming from us wanting to make music. So they keep talking about the label? And how the label wouldn't want it. You know what I mean? It seems to crop up enough where... And the fact that Sony doesn't list Sea of Cowards anywhere and it's attached to Warner Brothers is the thing that rang the alarm bells for me. Because for the life of me, I can't understand why. You know what I mean? Other than Hmm. them perhaps saying, we don't want a second Dead Weather release this quickly. Yeah. What else you got? You know? Obviously, this will be mentioned later, but this little bird <laughs> did tell us that the label stuff is mostly happenstance, that, you know, whatever is easiest and smoothest at the time. So mm. maybe it wasn't a smooth operation for Sony and Warner Brothers was willing to pick it up. So, I mean, eh, who knows? Uh, yes, I don't. But uh, as you say, time is a flat circle and we will for sure get to that. Yeah. Eventually. But James, let's move on to recording the album, shall we? I would love to. So there's an interesting dichotomy to the recording of this record. It was birthed from the band wanting to make more tracks to play live, but it was recorded more as an album proper than the improv jams of Whorehound. So it's simultaneously equal parts spontaneous energy and purposeful studio craft. Hmm. That's the real dichotomy here. It's like... It's born from a need, much in the same way as Whorehound, so it's like, it's got that spontaneous thing, but it's also polished. Yes. So it's, there's more craft to this one. I think you can just, on a first listen, you can hear. And I'm sure we'll get into it later on, but you can tell immediately from the marketing, the visuals, the packaging, Mm -hmm. the everything about it seems a lot more purposeful. They're wearing costumes, like they had costumes made, like... (laughs) There's music videos for it that are made on time with the album. So it makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more marketable. It sounds more like an album. The first one, I got, well, we'll get into this later, uh, but just from the overhead view, I think uh, Whorehound does feel like an album to me. And I think it actually feels more like a cohesive art piece in and of itself than Sea of Cowards does. But the individual tracks on Sea of Cowards are all more polished in general, and they all feel more together as songs, I would say. It's more of a polished collection of songs, which is reinforced by the narrative that the, it, it's the, the purpose of the thing was to populate the band's live set. Yeah. So what they would do is they would rehearse the new songs at a sound check or at one-off renditions at some shows here and there on the Whorehound tour, and then they compiled the list together and laid down demos at the Third Man studio when time would allow between legs of the tour. So Hmm. they basically used their live concert appearances to demo (laughs) the tracks, Hmm. which is kind of awesome, actually. People were unaware that they were hearing the Dead Weather figuring this shit out, you know? I'm wondering, like, hearing that now is interesting to me and i know obviously we'll get into this the track by track but like 
I wonder if a lot of the tour went into the writing of these songs as in like the invisible man. Yeah. Was that Jack White trying to be invisible in the back on the drums? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I think you're onto something there because as you say, I mean, they were written on tour. Yeah. So what they were going through in that moment is very much going to inform what they're putting down. So at third band studio, they put down demos based on what they rehearsed on the live set, but the demos wound up being so tight that they captured the energy the band wanted and they kept the demos but overdubbed them later. Hmm. So this album is basically whorehound with practice. We did uh, this, this one, we did it between tours, really. We would uh, come home for a few days. We would be in Nashville and uh, trying to put on tape what we had written on the road at Soundcheck and on the tour bus and whatnot. And uh, hmm. what ended up happening, what the problem was, the first demos we did at the record were uh, just too good. We couldn't re record them any better. So we ended up playing along with the demos. Uh, on this record and uh, we, we just couldn't tap them wow the magic was there straight away yeah, right off that the, often happens if you if you rehearse too much ruins exactly. it it could ruin it yeah yeah weird they played the tracks live and dug what they did brought them into the studio put down demos based on that rehearsal and then they're like actually let's just keep those huh and then they overdubbed them later so they used like craft on top of it macaroni uh yeah old mary full of grease <laughs> Uh, Jack told that site lesinrocks.com, and again, this is, uh, I think, a poorly translated thing, but I'm going to read it anyway because I think it's mostly there. We try to explore musically new things every day. We could not wait to play on stage. It's on stage that these songs invent a new life. They reach a kind of pinnacle. We understand that we have to push a little further out or not, if we can afford to or not. We have decisions to make, sometimes before the concerts, sometimes in a more improvised way, but whatever happens, we do everything not to offer the same show every night. Really, the concerts are going very well, and people react positively to the new songs, which is a great thing and a good sign, since they have not heard them on the record yet. I gotta tell you, James, I love when I hear a song I don't recognize that is intended for a new album from an artist on stage. I had the privilege of hearing some of the tracks from Margot Price's second album, hearing those live before that album came out. Same thing with Olivia Jean when I saw her this summer. Mm-hmm. It's always kind of cool to hear that stuff. Yeah, feels like you're getting a peek behind the curtain. Yes, this is via Pop Matters. The Dead Weather's first album, Whorehound, was written over a very short period of time before the band started hitting live stages last year. Mosshart says that things were no different this time around. Quote, The time frame was pretty much the same for this record. The songs seem to write themselves and suddenly they're done, she says. Everything just falls into place. It's quite magical, and that's how it should be because this record was written on the road and we were testing these songs out and playing them to audiences before we recorded them. When you're recording in the midst of touring, you get a different sense about you. Things are more rocking, darker, heavier, louder. You're thinking about the audience that you're seeing every night. So that's another way to think about these songs is they're, they're being recorded with an audience in mind. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's electric, you know, I think, uh, especially Alice in, in front of a full band like this, I don't think people have really seen that, and they walk away pretty astounded by her. I think she's sort of magnetic, you know. I think male or female, everyone's sort of talking about what Alison's doing on stage. I don't think anyone can touch her right now in rock and roll as a front person, woman, whatever she is. Mm, all of those she's incredible. We actually, the test hasn't come yeah. back yet, so... <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, she really controls the stage. Jack Lawrence uh, followed up with the Riverfront Times saying, quote, it kind of came while we were touring. We were taking some breaks in between gigs whenever we had time to record. This band's really great. We just keep coming up with song after song. It comes from us really inspiring each other. It's a little more aggressive this time. 
I don't know if that's just from being on the road or touring and writing it or just figuring out how to work with each other maybe. The first album was the first time we were really just playing together. This time we've had a little more time to learn from each other. The songs, some of them are heavier. There's a song off of it that's kind of, I don't know, a little more soul almost. And the soulful nature comes up a lot in how the band talks about this album, not necessarily how the critics did. Hmm. But the band refers to this one as their soul departure, which okay, I don't really see, but it's I, I guess it's there a little bit. I guess no horse, maybe? I don't know. So they recorded this at uh, Third Man Studio in Nashville. A quote from Jack, What happened is that we first started recording demos. We recorded them pretty quickly at the end of the tours not to forget them not to let them cool down, but we realized in the studio that it would be difficult to do better. They sounded really good, so we decided to keep them, but played on top of them to enrich them little by little with effects, synths, guitar solos, etc. But there's another important element. My studio took a year to be really built and finished, Mm -hmm. and I learned to master that studio, to understand it, to know it since the recording of Whorehound. The first thing I recorded, so that I can now afford more things... I know from now on, having tried dozens of times where and how to place a guitar or drums to make it sound exactly the way I want it to. You can find different tones, new ways of doing things. So, again, a more well-rehearsed Whorehound. Makes sense. Fifteen songs were recorded over three days total, just not as the crow flies, but soup to nuts, at Third Man in Nashville, and the newly constructed studio space gave some distinction to its predecessor. This is via Pop Matters. White's other activities have helped the band in one significant way, as they recorded Sea of Cowards in his newly built Third Man Studios at his home in Nashville. The use of this venue seemed to mark a distinct change sonically as the band continues to experiment with their sound. Quote, It was definitely a different recording process, Mosshart says, playing to demos bringing in another 8-track tape machine and playing along with yourself to try and extend songs or write new parts. There were all different kinds of crazy methods. We were building the record, which was different to the first time. That's the beauty of Jack having his own studio. You just get to try whatever you f***ing think of, and no one's going to stop you. So... That explains one of the things on this record. I don't know if you noticed this, James, but a lot of songs on this album have, like, tempo changes or abrupt starts and stops into other different kinds of sounding things. Yeah. So I guess that's one of the advantages of playing to the demos. They could stop it and extend the song. Yeah, I mean, they were all doing their own new different things. Allison brought in a new 8-track. Dean killed a guy. (laughs) Jack Lawrence found a new pedal. And a handlebar mustache. The first record went together really quickly. This one was uh, in between tours. We would get off at the end of a tour, go back to the studio for a couple of days and record a couple of songs, and then uh, again when we got back into town. So we worked on that for a few months, uh, but a few days at a time. So what can the fans expect this time around? We'll go with you. Oh, no. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's heavier. It's, yeah, it's a kind of more aggressive record than the first one sort of in the same vein. In I love it. Of, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it was done. Okay. Yeah. You guys want to add to that? She's right. She's right on the money. So from start to finish, the process of recording the record took three weeks via Jack Lawrence. I'd say three weeks total. I was here and there a few days. We really kind of came back and finished most of it through December and January, referring to December 2009, January 2010. Allison's been recording with the Kills during the same time, so she'd go with them for a couple weeks and then come back with us. Looking 
here sea of cowards was written over a longer period of time than its predecessor not in one piece we sh- we uh, wrote the songs went to the studio went on tour and so on and at different times there are necessarily different moods and personalities this is probably where all the peaks and valleys from the album come from i guess the nuanced difference is that the first record was recorded more in jack's place before it really started getting up and running as a studio proper and a year of third man records brought in changes and developments to that operation which affected the sound Hmm. it was being mixed as late as april of 2010 according to uh, an article in rolling stone so it was mixed over a pretty long period of time i think they really took their time to make this one sound tighter i'm interested to hear the first or second iteration of some of these songs and what the lyrics kind of changed into or morphed into as they were writing it. I think we get into it more in the track by track, but Allison's songwriting process is pretty haphazard in that regard. Well, if it's anything like Dodge and Burn, she listens to music in the car and then writes it down. And then, yeah, I mean, No Horse started as a Star Wars fan song. I ain't got no force. <laughs> Man, I'm full of them. No respect. So let's talk about the release of the album. <laughs> The album's title and some creepy imagery of the band in silhouette with masks on cascaded by yellow lighting was released on March 22nd, 2010. And again, according to that Rolling Stone article, the album wasn't even finished mixing yet. Pitchfork called the visual teaser, quote, birth of a nation meets eyes wide shut. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Bold statements. Kind of. I guess the tall hat, gentlemen. (laughs) Prior to its official commercial release, the Dead Weathers streamed a vinyl playback of the full album on their website for a 24-hour period from April 30th to May 1st of 2010. And I remember this. I I was at work, and I streamed it while I was at work there, and I enjoyed it a great deal upon first listen. It was a cool way to build up some hype for the record. Yeah, I listened to it, and I remember listening to the live stream of the record on my bed in college uh, (laughs) and going like, this is the new Jack White. I have to get used to this. <laughs> <laughs> I must love this. I, I do remember it must have been Ben or some, I guess it could have been some unnamed third man employee, but when the record on the live stream stopped, like when it was done, somebody took the needle and put it back on the beginning <laughs> and <then> walked away. <laughs> yeah, I annoyed a lot of people with this one Uh, after the album was released on the band's website it was made available for streaming on npr and the uh, kcrw websites as far as promotional appearances go prior to the release there was a live at third man performance where the band played a show in nashville on may 3rd at 5 p.m central prior to the album's release the album was played in full and the show was streamed on myspace and later appeared on the band's youtube page (laughs) 
This show was released in the Third Man Vault, and it was recorded live to analog and pressed directly to vinyl. It was in Vault Package Number Five, which goes to show you how early on in that process we were. Very early, yeah. Yeah, on blue and black split vinyl, and yet another new person worked on this one. I, I noticed a lot of names that I didn't recognize pop up on this record, and the one that uh, helped record this one was monitor engineer Derek Venured with lighting director Leif Dixon, sound designer Philip J. Harvey, and stage tech Chris Wong and Henry Trejo. Hmm. Um, so all those people are credited on this. Danny's lesser-known brother. Yeah. I'm guessing. There was an encore of Hang You Up From The Heavens and Cut Like A Buffalo released on 45 and a DVD of that set with a uh, different version of the record that's known as an attendee version. Via Discogs, the attendee version is different than the version shipped in the Vault series. Sold in a plain black sleeve, the spindle label is also different as it has the third man logo, which is standard for attendee versions. Only those at the show were able to get a copy of that. And if any of our listeners have a copy of that and would like to tell us any other differences or have memories of this show, we would love to hear it. Yes. The Matrix runouts on both the vault and attendees versions say the following on side A says, Encore, and the flip side is, Do You Want More? Hmm which hints at the Jay-Z collaboration. Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook it with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need y'all to brawl. The album was then formally released on May 11th, 2010. Let's get into some details here, James. Recorded and mixed at Third Man Studio in Nashville, largely over December 2009, January 2010. The album's total length is 35 minutes, 12 seconds, which is pretty darn short. Excessively short for a Jack... Well, I get... All right, it's not excessively short. It's pretty darn... All of his albums are pretty short. That 35 minutes is short. Yes. Oddly, it doesn't feel 35 minutes. (laughs) But the first Stripes album, though, how long was that? Like 31? Was it? Yeah. Distill is 37 minutes. Okay. Would you like to wager a guess as to the runtime of Broken Boy Soldiers? (laughs) I'm guessing it's short based on our conversation, so I'm going to guess 38. 33 minutes. What? Two minutes shorter than Sea of Cowards. That blows my mind every other album is around the 40 to 50 minute range that's crazy but the style and broken boy soldiers are both about as long if not a little shorter than sea of cowards i stand corrected i it seems short to me but i guess yeah that makes sense it was produced by jack white quote from jack on producing from the drummer's seat quote it was for me something very attractive even irresistible I also did it for Karen Elson's album and Wanda Jackson's album. 
even for the song recorded with Alicia Keys for James Bond. The point of view of the song is totally different. One finds oneself at the very base of its structure. The interest for the rhythms and the dynamics changes totally. I always thought that starting my music career as a drummer was important. That's what I did. Changing to guitar and piano a little later as a teenager. You start with the rhythms and the power you can put on it. And that power can be transferred to the guitar or the piano. So he's talking about how he's thinking about production there. And I think the production on the Dead Weather albums would really help inform how he started to produce stuff later on. Uh, Because everything starts to sound like the Dead Weather. And as we'll get to in a moment, Blue Blood Blues may as well be a Jack solo song. Yep technical credits the album's tech credits are split between jack people and allison people so we have bill skib who's an engineer Ooh. this guy's cool he produced the kills during all their 2011 releases and tech assists prior to that and performed both instruments and tech assists with one of my favorite groups the fiery furnaces jack fans would also recognize his tech assists with bands like adult blonde redhead the black keys and jacuzzi boys hmm. bill also provided tech assists for boarding house reach the album also features Vance Powell, who did engineering and mixing. Vance, we know, he's a staple of Third Man and linked up with Jack for a long time. Joshua V. Smith, another one. John Hampton was an engineer on the record. He's an interesting one. This guy works at Ardent Studios in Memphis, mm. which is where, of course, the White Stripes recorded Get Behind Me, Satan. Well, John here mixed that record, which we actually discussed on the Satan Analysis and Review Show. So this guy came into the picture via a Stripes connection. He's the kooky older fella who had a long and storied career in music production and looks like studio work as a drummer and a vocalist. So I do actually remember talking about John Hampton on those Satan episodes. Yeah. Jessica Ruffins, who uh, helped record the album, was a Jacuzzi Boys producer and had some similar tech and instrument credits as found in Bill's profile. Of note, tech assists on Wolf Eyes, Adult, Fiery Furnaces, and The Kills. It's possible her and Bill were Allison's suggestions, especially since we don't see their names too often on Jack stuff. And there's another one on here, Lydia Gilman, who helped record the record. Her career is seemingly very short and starts and stops mostly with Sea of Cowards and Dodge and Burn. Her only other tech credits are for Danny Liston and Huey Lewis and the News, funnily enough. Whoa. Yeah. And then uh, lastly here we have Max Satch, who um, also helped record the album, and this is his sole... The monster? (laughs) (laughs) What are you kids doing out here? We couldn't sleep because of the Satchmo. Satchmo? The trumpet player? No, the monster. This is his sole recording credit listed on Discog, so I don't know if Max has done more, but maybe, maybe not. Interesting. Talk a little bit about the labels here. It was released on Third Man Records under license to Warner Brothers Records, pressed at United Record Pressing in Nashville, and by Sinram in Oliphant, Pennsylvania. Oliphant, Pennsylvania. I don't know. Elephant. Elephant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Publishing for each individual artist includes Sleeping Disorder Music, which is Dean Fertitta. Domino Publishing Company USA, which is Allison, and she is built into a larger publishing house. Third String Tunes for Jack, and Each Hit Below Me, which is LJ's publishing company. He could have done better. Yeah, it's no Caligula's horse or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Mastered at Universal Mastering Studios by Vlado Meller and Mark Santingelo. 
Apparently the mastering process was considered controversial, but I couldn't find any reference to the controversy other than someone calling the mastering process of this record controversial. So if anyone would like to tell us anything about that, I would be interested in knowing. Couldn't be as controversial as Icky Thump was. Now, what is the controversy of that? Remember, it was, um, they blew out the bass and stuff in the CD version. They really just upped the, it was the Loudness Wars stuff. They were were really pumping it up. So there was a lot of fan controversy with that, saying that the record was way better than the CD version, sound quality-wise, and you could hear more subtle things on the record, etc., etc. And they really dragged the CD version through the dirt, even though it, I don't think it deserves it. It is differently mastered, but... Well, if there's one thing I enjoy in this universe, it's a good fan controversy. Maybe we should start a petition on change.org. Uh, let's start a corporation. <laughs> Who's with me? (laughs) So before we get into the track by track here, we'll just talk a little bit about the title, art, and design for the record. The title and theme for the design is one part angry lash out at the band's critics and one part Captain Beefheart reference. (laughs) Huh. So the title, Jack White explained the album title to Spinner. The title came about because the lyrics on the album had a lot to do with cowardice. It was an idea that kept popping up when I listened to the mix down. I was explaining to Allison that since a lot of themes of the songs are about cowardice, maybe we should have the word coward in the album's title. And then via Pop Matters, just before Sea of Cowards was released, White explained that the album's title is a reference to critics who he believes only feel safe attacking others because of the anonymity granted to them by the internet. Mossart agrees that Sea of Cowards is definitely to do with the internet, but it's kind of to do with all cowardice. People making statements, claims, and voicing their opinions without showing their faces. It's kind of like being horrible but hiding behind a fucking rock. I think all of us have experienced that too many times. Nobody takes any responsibility for what they say or what they write. That is the dawning of the age of social media. The age mm-hmm. of social media. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe that's what Invisible Man's about. Ah. I'm stuck on that song because it's like, you can't hit me. It's all about, he's just lobbing insults, but he, this person, you'll never know who he is and you can't attack them back. I don't know. It may be, I'm starting to understand. I think that makes a lot of sense. In reference to the art and design for the album, its art emphasizes that point, but it isn't necessarily directly related. Quote, from Allison. Wearing a mask or hiding behind something is quite cowardly, but it's more of an artistic version. That image was inspired by an old Captain Beefheart photo. It's the four of them, and they're all wearing homemade tin can masks in this black and white photo. It's really beautiful. Got a letter this morning. How do you reckon it red? Red and blue and green. Woo! All through my head. Licked a stamp, saw a movie, dropped a stamp. Woo! Mm, I ain't got no blues no more, I said. Uh, put me up thinking, ah, postman's groovy. I ain't, woo, I ain't got the blues no more, I said. The design credit goes to friend of the show, Rob Jones, mm-hmm. of Animal Rummy. And photos of the band used in the art were taken by Floria Sigismondi and Hugh, Hugh, Hugh Get? Hugh Grant. Hugh- <laughs> I'll just fire away then, shall I? <laughs> Hugh Get Rowe. Uh, Rob Jones told 
eviltinder.com, which sounds like a... Um, eviltinder.com. Yeah, it sounds like a dating app for Satanists. For big band LP releases like this, I don't have anything to do with the band photography, costuming, or setups. Sea of Cowards was strictly between the band and Floria. I had received a ton of photos and tried to figure out the best way to make a cover from them. That said, Sea of Cowards was a little different as the band eventually landed on not using the actual photos, but rather some quick Polaroids that Floria shot on which had a great uncanny quality to them. I did about 12 treatments on those before the band chose one that they were all pleased with. This is interesting too, and we're going to get to this a little bit later in the track-by-track discussion, James, but they thought that they could shoot the cover and the art and the debut music video for Die by the Drop all in one day. Now, we'll talk about that a little later on, but there's a reason why the music video for Die by the Drop looks exactly like the band just walked off of the cover of their album because all of them were done simultaneously. Huh. Interesting. I'm very happy to know that there's a Beefheart reference in the photo and all that stuff. I'm a little disappointed that there's not any more thought into tying into Sea of Cowards with that. Yeah. Like, I I wanted it to... It's interesting. There's a mystery. There's a story that I want to learn. And knowing the story, I'm a little... I don't want to say let down, but it, it just seems less... You wish it were deeper, right? Well, I wish there was some kind of weird, m- mystical, Tolkien-esque story he's coming up with these masked figures, not just... Uh, it was cool. Well... You're putting on masks when you're on the internet. You're putting on masks when you're a coward, all that stuff. I get it, but I don't know. I wanted these creatures to have names. I think a lot of... Uh, I mean, and, and again, this is my editorializing here, but I think a lot of it is just the dead weather have an aesthetic. Yeah. And they build mythology around that aesthetic, like Jack does with all of his other bands. And so the idea that they're wearing kooky masks, the starting point of it is Beefheart, but where it goes from there, I think Jack likes, much like he likes to say, he lets the music tell him what to do. I think he lets the imagery also tell him what to do. So I think there's something to do with that there. Yeah. I would just like to write a spooky novel about these folks. (laughs) I know you've been dying to publish your Die by the Drop fan fiction. No, yeah. It's on Tumblr.com. Oh, Tumblr.com. Yeah, .com, it's called. Let's start the track by track here, James, but I think we're only going to have time for one song. Let's get into that track by track, Paul. Let's dive into that sea of cowards. We will start with Blue Blood Blues. So this track was written by Jack, Dean, and LJ. 
It was engineered by Bill Skibb and Vance Powell with recording assists from Jessica Ruffins and Joshua V. Smith, mixed by Vance and Jack with assists by Joshua V. Smith. On writing with Dean and LJ, Jack says, I also believe that the writing of Dean and Jack, who do not usually write in their own bands, has also progressed on our tours, our concerts, our common experiences. They have the energy and ideas to bring new things to the group permanently. They have made me write more rhythmically and to change some things. All of this nourishes the fact that we do not want to repeat ourselves in any way, that we are always trying to go elsewhere. And the funk elements, the big beats, the bits of hip-hop are for Allison an important change, a new perspective in which she has evolved. There are a lot of heavy pieces on Sea of Cowards, but I also find that the album is full of fairly new soul, refined or more audible compared to that of Whorehound. So there's another reference to the soul there, but also a reference, as you see, to hip-hop. Do you change your style of making music based on who you're making it with, or do you adapt to the people you're working with? You you just do it without even thinking about it. It just happens. I mean, uh, um, there's no uh, there's no worries about it. I mean, you just the four of us write together in a room. It's going to sound different than than working with other people. Is it because of the guys and the girl you're with? Yeah, of course. It's what everyone brings to the table. I mean, if you were if there was one person writing everything and telling everybody what to do, it might be a different story. But it's not. I, this is a really collaborative, and uh, the four of us are writing. The, the album has every different combination of. Writing, you know, two here, four here, three there, you know, every right. song is it's really wild. Via NME, as if grabbing the reins, White takes the lead on the squalling Blue Blood Blues, winding the band up with a tension that proceeds to spin out throughout the rest of the 11 tracks. Rolling Stone called this track a furious pileup of Jack Lawrence's grunting fuzz bass, Dean Fertitta's abrasive skidding guitar, and bizarre doo-wop vocal pepper pushed around by White's mule-kick outbursts at his kit. <laughs> Some more d- delightful hyperbole. They're coming up with that good Tumblr fanfic that we all I, want for this. <laughs> I love this song. It's very good. It's in my top five, maybe even top three Jack songs. It's one of the first songs that we hear on an album where Jack is using audio distortion. Mm-hmm. And has a lot in common with, I would say, Lazaretto. Yeah, boarding house reach, where he would eventually wind up with a solo career—not necessarily blunderbuss, but um, I think this one is a forerunner of things to come, as sure as anything else he's ever recorded. Pitchfork hones in on this one. They spotlight the line that made me fall in love with the track. If anyone thought the dead weather was going to be the project where Jack White let someone else take the lead, those notions end at a minute and thirty-eight seconds into Sea of Cowards opener Blue Blood Blues, when White tears into one of his nonsensically badass couplets, check your lips at the door, woman, and shake your hips like battleships. Yeah, all the white girls trip when I sing at Sunday service. It's fantastical tough guy gibberish worthy of Bo Diddley, and it's the sort of line that only an extremely confident singer would ever attempt, let alone pull off. It reveals the dead weather to be just another white vehicle, the one that plays host to his most deranged impulses. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite line in that song. I remember buying this CD at Best Buy, in uh, Yonkers, New York, and driving home on Central Ave and listening to it. And when that line came on, I was like, oh my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. It really gave me a lot of hope for this band and for um, future Jack stuff, because I was so-so on Whorehound. And um, 
I was sort of so-so on Consolers a little bit. Yeah. But boy, this song really reminded me of what loving a Jack White song could feel like. And it's got that tie to cowardice in this, too, with the last lines being, if I left you, woman, you know I wouldn't leave a trace. Mm. You'll never see me again. Actually, he says that. Ah. Yeah. forgot about that. Consequence of Sound points out that this one has some ragtime piano bits thrown in, which I point out mainly because I think they're describing that very Jack White sounding trope of the swirly whirly notes. That's very Jack Jack Whitey. Some interesting descriptors from the BBC. Blue Blood Blues is the first clue that the bar's been raised here. Musically, it sounds like a funky twist on the staccato end of the Stripes songbook squelchy guitar accents indulging the tastes of its kitschy sound effects that has crept into White's latter-day output. Lyrically, it finds Detroit's pastiest son spitting devious rhymes as bone-shakingly good as shake your hips like battleships and all the white girls trip when I sing at Sunday service. So the BBC also points out that line, which jumped out to me. Via song facts. This song talks about the negation of self that often happens when caught up in an all-consuming affair. Mosshart is the band's lyric writer, which she tends to make up on the spot. She told Artist Direct how she penned the words for songs on Sea of Cowards. The boys are playing music where in a room together and everything's moving at such a fast speed they're coming up with parts and a song develops i'm standing there in front of a mic and have to catch or keep up the words just come out from that i'm inspired by the music the music's heavier so maybe the words are too i've written everything by looking around the room at the three of them kind of being blown away and trying to do their music justice so while she didn't write these lyrics she's responding to mm how these lyrics are coming about which are basically just being shouted into the room this one was released as a single on june 25th 2010 a 7 inch and a 12 inch digital download as well as the fabled triple decker record a new 12 inch for the dead weathers a song blue blood blues but this isn't any ordinary 12 inch it's a new third man triple decker record a 12 inch with a 7 inch hidden inside of it the 7 inch contains an unreleased song by the dead world you can't get the hidden song unless you crack the 12 inch open, and that might require a Swiss Army knife or a screwdriver. Blue Blood Blues was the first song appearing in this format in a limited release of 300 units that contained the song I Feel Strange inside. But you can't hear it unless you acquire one of these 12 inches and crack it open. It's one of the many mind games we love to play with you here at Third Man Records, the triple decker record of Third Man. I feel strange, f***ing rad tune. Love it. It's great. I love that one. We talk more about the Triple Decker records in one of our Thanksgiving episodes. 
It's the second single to be taken from the album, and it's backed with a live version of Jawbreaker on the 7-inch and a live cut of No Hassle Night slash I Just Want to Make Love to You on the 12-inch. Anti-Quiet observed that the song was unusual for the Dead Weather in that it felt like a solo piece for Jack White, which I think is pretty true. Mm-hmm. There's a video for it, which premiered on Conan O'Brien's TeamCoco.com on June 24th, 2010. It's a performance from the band's May 3rd show at Third Man Nashville, and it's in stylized solarized black and white which uh, wikipedia points out is similar to the kills video feed my little brains spin calls out the lines uh, that i mentioned earlier and adding that the tune was sabbath worthy for the holy sabbath yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the track was featured in the season two finale of hbo's eastbound and down in 2010 and it also appeared in the tv series misfits and the united states of Terra. Oh, okay And James, that's where we will leave part one of Sea of Cowards. We will be back with part two, where we will go through the rest of the track-by-track release. And what do you say we get into our uh, third man for this week? Let's get to our third man this week. would like to welcome Sam Sandak. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it very much. Oh, for sure. Gotta give a quick shout out to my girlfriend, Greer Tyson, who, by the way, if you ever want to, she has an open challenge to anyone in the world, aside from Jack White himself, to a Jack White trivia contest. Mm. So if anyone ever wants to challenge her on your show, she'd be willing to do that. I think that sounds like a fantastic idea. (laughs) I'm liking this. I'm thinking a Family Feud style episode. Uh, As long as I get to be Steve Harvey. (laughs) Ah, yes. I'll be... Who was before Steve Harvey? Al Borland? I want to say Louis Anderson. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Wasn't Al Borland on there? I feel like he was. And I'm referring to him by his Tim the Toolman Taylor name. His God-given Tim Allen name, Al Borland. (laughs) Um, All of that aside, thank you, Sam, again for joining us. You're a writer, you're a filmmaker. Sam, you and I have known each other for a little while now. We first worked together, oh, I want to say probably four years ago or so by this point on some comics. But we only just discovered recently that we were respectively Jack White fans. And so we got this together because you saw him recently. But we wanted to just start here on how you became a fan and what your like favorite record is, what your sweet spot is. Oh, well, I became a fan as a young child because actually I was in this summer camp called CAPS. It was Creative Arts Program of the Summer, I think was what it stood for. Mm-hmm. It took place at Campbell Hall School which is here in the Valley. So a bunch of us uh, Valley entertainment industry kids went to this creative arts camp and played music, made movies. And I was actually in the band as the bassist with Charlie Negron, Chuck Negron's daughter, as the singer. Uh And we uh, played Seven Nation Army, and that was kind of my first introduction to Jack White. And I remember specifically because there's that lyric in the song, Back and Forth Through My Mind Behind a Cigarette, yeah, And Charlie was really sensitive to smoking because her dad, Chuck Negron, smoked so much and she just hated it. And huh. my parents went and saw Chuck Negron pretty recently, actually, and he had an oxygen tank hooked up to his glasses. Oh, my God. So I guess I understand why she was a little upset about that. I don't remember what we changed the lyric to, but she was... She's such a good singer. I think she may have even come out on stage when my parents went and saw them. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Nice. But yeah, when we were like 11 or 10, we were in this band together. So you got to know Jack's music when you were a younger person playing, you said bass? Yeah, I played bass because we, uh, you know, it was, the internet was around, but it wasn't as prevalent. And we, we were kind of very new to Jack White. 
So we, we, we didn't even know that there wasn't a bass in the White Stripes. Yeah, yeah. Seven Nation Army's the perfect song to put a bass in because he's playing a deep octave guitar that sounds kind of like a bass. That's right. He has his weird tuning, which I love. Yeah. We just did it on the bass, and we uh, we had a bass and a guitar, and uh, we just to get that extra depth. I was on bass and he was on guitar. We were both doing the same thing, mm. and she sang the song so well. Nice. So you started out putting bass lines on. White Stripes tunes. How long have you been playing bass? Was that right around when you started, or were you playing even younger than that? I was playing even younger than that. I My main thing is guitar, mm-hmm. but if you can play guitar, you can basically uh, play bass. I mean, there's uh, John Entwistle talks about the difference between a bassist and a bass guitarist. You know, yeah. he'll say, a, ba- a bassist does this, dum 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 dum. a bass guitarist does... <laughs> I was definitely in just just a bassist, but I definitely was part of the Didi Ramon school of just play it like a guitar. So I I used to pick, right, uh, mm-hmm. and I I played it like a guitar. So it kind of was true to the way it was on the album, even though there was no bass. Uh, so you mentioned guitar, and uh, when we were talking uh, earlier, you mentioned a '61 Silvertone guitar, the same one that uh, Dex Rom Weber of the Flat Duo Jets uses. So you've got, you're a Flat Duo Jets fan, I see. Can I answer that question with my guitar, please? Go go holla baby. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, as for your other question, what my favorite Jack White song is, I'd like to also answer that with my guitar, if I may. Please, sure. Yeah, bring it up. <laughs> Killer. Nice, dude. This is a first on the show. We've never had a live uh, guitarist here actually playing any music. That's great. You said that you sounded wonderful. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about the show you saw, because we're going to talk about the shows we saw respectively, and we saw concerts within like a couple days of one another. So tell us a little bit about your recent concert experience, and that was in Santa Barbara. Am I right? Yes, I've got the set list, and I checked it out, and I can completely corroborate 100% that this is accurate. He started with over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Then Corporation. Over and over into Corporation. I like that transition a lot. And he's been opening a lot of shows on this tour with Over and Over. And I think it's a... I'm, I'm happy he's opening with a new song. And I'm happy he's opening with a new song that's actually like, you know, gets the crowd going and stuff. It's a nice opener. Yeah. Yeah, it's better than a, a Bulia and a Crazia <laughs> as an opener. But uh, what are your feelings on, on the, the new material at, at the concert, Sam? Well, I was really excited by all of it. The thing about Jack White, I kind of sometimes compare him to uh, Led Zeppelin and uh, Francis Ford Coppola as artists in that those are the guys who swing for the fences. And when you swing for the fences, you strike out every once in a while, but you hit more home runs than anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's 100% true of Jack White. I like his other stuff a lot better than, for example, the Tours, but I still like the Tours. Yeah, it's a more pop-centric kind of stuff, at least the first album. You said your girlfriend's a big Jack White fan. Did she uh, go to the concert with you? Yeah, she and her brother Blake were in a band together, actually, called Surface to Air Missile. Whoa. Has she been a fan uh, for a long time as well? Yeah, very much so. She knows a lot more than I do. She gives me crash courses and all sorts of Jack White stuff all the time nice cool so the santa barbara was it the santa barbara bowl it was called i think yes or... it was at the santa barbara bowl and he made some very interesting choices i don't know if he did this at your show but he did tvi by the stooges oh, oh wow
here was the show, and I can 100% verify all of this. It was over and over and over. Then Corporation, who's with me? Dead Leaves on the Dirty Ground, Missing Pieces, Lazaretto, Hotel Yorba, Why Walk a Dog, Cannon, Broken Boy Soldier, Respect Commander, Do. Then he jumped into TVI. Then Just One Drink, then Ball in a Biscuit. And then it looked like it was over. And then it wasn't over. And the encore was Icky Thump, my favorite. Nice. My doorbell. Connected by Love. Freedom at 21. We're going to be friends. Ice Station Zebra. Steady as she goes. And then closing out on my other favorite, Seven Nation Army. That's fantastic. That's a really good set list. Yeah. I must admit, one of my least favorite Jack White songs, he turned around steady as she goes i'm not a huge fan of that song mm-hmm. i understand why it's good but compared to his other stuff i'm not a huge fan of it but yeah. he turned that into louis louis oh nice in comedy we have the aristocrats the aristocrats of rock and roll is louis louis <laughs> just a lot of mumbling <laughs> yeah you make it up as you go along and basically get to the salient point of louis louis <laughs> uh well that's really cool uh covers for me personally on this tour the set lists have been i wouldn't say predictable but like at the very least, a little safe in terms of my personal taste, but I love it when he busts out one of a, like a cover that you're not expecting, particularly like a Stooges cover like you got, which is really awesome, or like James, you got Shaken All Over, Shaken All Over, and I, oh, and I got Baby Blue, uh, which yep. was at uh, at the Warsaw. I've been really liking hearing covers, especially with this new band that he's got on stage, which is getting tighter as they go. What were your thoughts on the band, Sam? Oh, they killed it. They absolutely crushed it. They were fantastic. They're not a sour note in the whole show that I heard. Nice. But I don't know if that was just because I was so excited because, you know, I've watched all the documentaries and stuff and uh, the kind of guitar player that Jack is is that every once in a while he's going to miss a note, but he makes it so it doesn't matter. Yeah. I didn't notice any. He was so 100% on point and so was the band. I thought it was all great. Everybody in that lineup was just 100% killing it. Yeah, he's able to play like a jazz player and, and take a sour note and make it work for the song instead of dwelling on it or trying to correct it. Yeah. So... I appreciate his uh, mistake covering, or lack thereof. And he's especially good at that with his slide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sam, what's the Santa Barbara Bowl like as a venue? Is it uh, is it a large sort of arena type thing, or how? what's it? Is there a comparable place, you would say? I've never been there personally, but I, I've seen footage of Jack White performing there, Red Rock, mm. in the... Uh, Colorado? In the Colorado, yeah. Yeah. Okay. My girlfriend and her brother lived in Colorado for a while, and they, I think they saw Jack White at Red Rock. Oh, nice. And during Ball and Biscuit, there was a lightning storm, and the thunder clashes were exactly with the beat of the drums. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's great. So is it an outdoor arena then, I'm guessing? Or? Oh, yeah, it was outdoors. Okay, cool, cool. With a facility of our size, uh, we're very fortunate to host the caliber artists that we do each year. And those ticket prices are in direct relation to what the cost of those acts are. As a result, we have to set the ticket prices accordingly to be able to get these artists to play our small venue. The ticket prices at the Santa Barbara Bowl, in comparison to many of the larger markets, are often less. And you're being afforded the ability to see these acts in a facility that is maybe a quarter of the size of these other buildings. When the show started, I'm assuming the sun had already gone down, or was it still setting? Was there like, uh, was there any light at all, or was it mainly just like uh, the Jack's sort of blue ambiance? Yeah, it was. It was dark out. Yeah. 
Okay. It was, it was pretty dark out. Did you guys have the light show at yours with the video screens and all that? Oh, yes. Yeah, the, they had the video screens. Okay, because the show I was at in Cooperstown, New York, was also outdoors, and they just did not even bother <laughs> with the screens and stuff, which was kind of a bummer because I haven't seen it ever. I've seen him twice on this tour, and both times he has yet to have that show for me personally. Paul got to see it twice. Yes. Do we even know who made that footage? Yes. The guy who created the visuals is a fellow named... I'm going to mispronounce this horribly. He's from Montreal. It's very French. Matteo Larive. Larive? Larive. Matteo Larive. I'm going to go ahead and (laughs) guess. Apparently, he only got two directives from Jack, which I feel like is just a press kit kind of statement it, the visuals had to be blue and involve the number three and so that is pretty cool and it looks like he is a uh, he's a montreal based uh, artist and he also did production and lighting design for uh, broken bells panic at the disco foster the people and, and some others apparently this is his biggest uh, gig yet he got to know uh, Jack White through their management company, Monotone, who also manages Broken Bells. So it sounds like that's where they sort of linked up. And we should do a, a more expansive look at that later because it's a really cool, interesting new thing that Jack added to this tour, those visuals. Now, Sam, did you say Seven Nation Army in that set list? Yes, it ended with Seven Nation Army. Did you get the cool like visuals that mimicked the music video Seven Nation Army with a fast-moving live video and then it's replaced by the other live video behind it that kind of thing or no or i only vaguely remember that part because once he once jack white was on stage playing seven nation army i wasn't taking my eyes off him <laughs> yeah, yeah i was just like oh my god i can't believe because it's just it was just a culmination of my childhood the fact that there he was playing the song for me after when i was nine or ten playing the song for a bunch of other people I know, so i was just I, I was a little bit in a, in a daze by the way uh you know, uh, Jack White always says his favorite director is Orson Welles. D- don't you ever wonder? I mean, I know he's produced he produced the White Stripes documentary, but he didn't direct it. I wonder what would happen if he directed a narrative film. That's interesting. So he's directed music videos, but yeah, you're right. Never like a narrative film like that. I think it'd be interesting. It would certainly be weird. It would be an art piece. Yeah, because Jack has got like a, his eye for directing, I feel like is avant-garde. Too small. He's got too small of an eye. Yes. Yeah, it's a, a fisheye. Yeah. I don't know actually what a narrative film by Jack would look like. I have a feeling he would be doing a lot of stuff uh, similar to Coffee and Cigarettes. Yeah. That kind of, I think that kind mm. of oeuvre would be his go-to. Now, Sam, as a filmmaker yourself, do you have any predictions of what a Jack White narrative film might look like or be about? Well, I do have a little bit of evidence of what a Jack White film might look like because Jack White being Jack White, he can't help but kind of bring his vision to whatever he's doing. So you watch the movie, it might get loud. And Mm -hmm. his entire segment of that movie, he kind of just decided, okay, there's going to be a little kid version of Jack White following me around. Right. And doing all this weird stuff, and I'm going to be teaching about a play. So you can tell that the filmmaker was like, okay, I got Jimmy Page, I got The Edge, and they're doing this thing. But they had to contend with Jack White a little bit because <laughs> there's just no way to get Jack White without his vision, just the floodgates opening and just Jack White craziness just entering whatever project he's doing. So I think that more likely we would get some sort of experimental film out of him. But mm. I'd be interested because he's such a natural storyteller yeah. to see what he would do narrative. The stories he seems drawn to, at least in his current state, are very broken apart 
narratives that all interconnect. And he's been kind of on that tip for a little while. So like, uh, even with his album covers, they all interconnect into one story for his solo albums going from Blunderbuss even into Boarding House Reach. And I think he likes having all of these separate stories, like in Corporation, which I get the idea is that Corporation is that many, many things That's right. go into one. I think Corporation was a, a perfect kind of example as to where his thinking is right now as far as visual storytelling. So kind of having everything puzzle pieced together into something that kind of makes sense i mean at the end corporation sort of has a ending but yeah all that's to say is paul it's pronounced matthew (laughs) (laughs) so sorry loop back around here to the live shows santa barbara sounds like an amazing experience did you have any other memories from that show you wanted to share with us oh just all of it mostly it was uh the exchanges of looks of shock every time he would jump into a bizarre cover we weren't expecting yeah Mm mm-hmm well, about three days later, uh, a couple days after you saw him at the Santa Barbara Bowl, I went with my brother-in-law to see him at uh, Viejas Arena in San Diego. And not too much to report here, but it was a great show in the Viejas Arena, which is gigantic, located on a college campus. And it's huge. It's, it's really, really big. And that stadium was pretty much filled, except for some of the you know extreme lefts and rights of the stage. One of the funnier points of this whole experience was, A, it was an extremely rowdy college crowd, and B, it was an extremely rowdy college crowd that had to sit through 45 minutes of William Tyler, <laughs> um, which is, if you're not familiar, I think, actually, I think, Sam, you might have gotten, were you there for the opener at Santa Barbara? Uh, no, we kind of rolled in a little late. Okay, yeah, so the opener is William Tyler, who plays a lot of low-key instrumental acoustic songs that, uh, again, have no lyrics. college kids like a one-man band fish (laughs) (laughs) william tyler's fine you know the last time i saw him was in a much smaller setting i saw him at the troubadour open for margo price um, back in 2016 and um that was probably a better setting for where you'd want to see the william tyler however he did a good job and uh, we did get the visuals again at viejas which i was happy about because i really liked those visuals a little of the magic was gone because i couldn't you know i was able to anticipate when certain things were happening in the visuals but it was a great set and jack was high energy was jumping around had a hat that was exciting a big old hat yeah <laughs> uh Paul's pulling at strings as to what's new about this, and the new is the hat. Nothing much was new. Uh, again, open with over and over, then we got Dead Leaves, and this one was a Lazaretto-heavy show, which is good for me because I love Lazaretto, but nothing too terribly surprising. We did get Battle Cry, and if I'm not mistaken, James, to the left of the stage, I was close. I was pretty damn close to the stage, and I'm pretty sure Ben Jenkins was there uh, off to the 
left. It would make sense. He was at the baseball thing we just talked about. I'm pretty sure I saw him backstage because I could see pretty clearly back there. Uh, but we got uh, we got some relatively interesting ones for this tour. Trash Tongue Talker, I always like hearing live. Martyr for My Love for You, we don't hear that one every time. And my personal favorite was hearing both humor-esque and Get in the Mineshaft. The Get in the Mineshaft story for this show was about San Diego and Jack was going on about there was this club he used to play when he was younger and they played all different kind of music and then he just rattled off different genres of music for a while and then when he stopped that the ending of the story was like he's like how could this guy live above this club and hear all that music all the time 24-7 he must go insane and the landlady said well he's blind and deaf (laughs) (laughs) was Jack covering his eyes during that? he did not cover his eyes Okay, Uh, no another funny bit was he kept taking weird shots at the San Diego police. <laughs> he was talking about, he during corporation, he's like, we're going to gather up all the dirty cops in San Diego, form one giant army. So I don't know what that's in reference to. I think it has probably to do with immigration because the Maybe. San Diego borders Mexico on the I guess south side. Maybe. I don't know. I could have my geography wrong. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> at a certain point, my brother-in-law, Adrian, before the concert started, Adrian's like, hey, when is he going to come on? And I was like, uh, oh, he'll probably be on around this time. He's like, how long is his show? I was like, oh, it's about so long. And he's like, oh, that's not going to work with the curfew. And I was like, curfew? What are you talking about? And then the lights went down, and that's when the, the show sort of started. So I had no idea what Adrian was talking about. Then at the end of the show, but right before he closed with Seven Nation Army, somebody came out and whispered something into his ear during the encore and he's like, one more, really? And so he walked up to the mic. He's like, you guys put a curfew? You guys have a curfew <laughs> on music? <laughs> there was a curfew, and it's probably because it was on a college campus. I will say, I am a, uh, a delicate person. A true flower. I, yeah. uh, you know, fights, not my forte. Uh, this was a crowd that was rowdy to the point where I was planning on what I was going to do in a scuffle. Um <laughs> Paul fashioned a shiv (laughs) out of some beer cans he found on the floor. Uh, Because during the encore, we got a massive rush of extremely drunk college kids shoving their way up past me and, like, really being violent about it to people around me and stuff. Lord Palmerston! Hit the elder. Lord Palmerston! Hit the elder! Okay, you asked for it, Boggs! It got to the point where, like, it was looking like there was going to be some kind of a fight. Now, I would be useless in a fight, of course, but I would have been there in it. I would have been in it. Uh, (laughs) Adrian said that they were quite uh, high and had been reading the back of the shirt that I was wearing that James got me for my birthday that says, Fools Desire Distraction, and looking at it with, like, their head tilted and um, (laughs) throughout the show. And there was crowd surfing. There was more than one instance of crowd surfing before the old-timey security guard at the front, who reminded me of, like, a hall monitor in high school, had to grab the kid by the collar and yank him off. And he's going to, like, yeah! And this would have annoyed me. However, I'm happy younger people, particularly college-age people, are trying to go to a Jack White show. I'm happy that he had that kind of energy, because I think that's what he kind of is looking for um, yeah. with this show and that kind of tour. And even the stupid mosh pits and crowd surfing and shoving and all that stuff, it never it never impeded my experience because I was like, I'm happy they're enjoying themselves. 
So that was the other thing. And when we were in the elevator, returning to the car, poor Adrian, who works in music, he's a DJ down in San Diego. He was in an elevator with a, a packed elevator with extremely drunk people screaming and singing. And I patted him on the shoulder as if to say, aren't you happy you came? And that was the invitation all the drunk people needed to start touching him. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> when Jack White becomes Jack Fight. <laughs> A study of Jack White mosh pits. <laughs> and that's how the night ended. I drove home from San Diego at about one in the morning, and here I am. I think that you could probably sleuth out Robert Stack style some algorithm as to the right mix of college kids, beer, and rock and roll yeah. that sometimes gets to that point mm-hmm. uh, in today's in today's society. Oh, yes. I guess the takeaways are, hey, the kids, the kids still listen to the Jack sometimes, and it was a packed arena. So, A+. plus. Sam, we want to uh, thank you for joining us here on the show today. Now, as we mentioned earlier, you are a filmmaker and a writer. Where can people find your work online if they'd like to check your stuff out? Well, my uh, movie that I made recently uh, took me about four or five years to make. It's called The Dead Enders. Uh-huh. It's on Amazon Prime right now. You can, uh, nice. watch it. you can watch it free if you got Prime. Other than that, it's like four bucks to buy. I think it's a pretty good deal. The Dead Enders... It's a bunch of uh, teenage nihilists versus the apocalypse. Cool. If you're into that sort of thing. Nice. My Instagram is Action Sam Sandak. Nice. I've got two features coming up. One called House of Darkness. It's a horror film. Uh huh. And mm-hmm. my girlfriend and I are making a uh, movie called Dance on Fire. Very cool. Awesome. Which is kind of a, a, a valley slice of life film. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on the show. Do you want to play us out uh, on a Jack White song? Oh, yeah, why not? Let's get this thing going. Nice. (laughs) Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks for having me. so much about Sea of Cowards this week. What do you say we blow through some shout-outs? I would love to shout it, shout it, shout it out loud. Are you also sad about the Kiss uh, Farewell tour? Don't know what that means. They're uh, touring for the last time. That's not true. Gene Simmons will be licking everyone personally in the audience who shows up. That's fine. I saw him accidentally anyway. I saw Kiss accidentally anyway, so it's fine. Uh, Paul Stanley will then be vacuuming up that spit. That's true. That's true. With yes. with his lips, it's basically going to be a big orgy. <laughs> Best tour. And the cat one will pee on you for free. <laughs> <laughs>
he's marking his territory. What's the spaceman doing? <laughs> Is he with the bloater? <laughs> he's just, he's watching, because that's what he likes. <laughs> he's feeling ace freely. Um, oh. James, we'd like to Whoa. shout out to some regular listeners for the show. Uh, people who are with us uh, week in, week out. You always do this one, so I'm going to do it this time. Why don't we start with our third woman in spirit every week, Kelly Durga. Uh, Eileen, I, we see you over there. Corsano, Andre Ice Cold Lyman, Mayo Me, it's me oh my. We have Jeremy Riles, keeping us on those rails. Kate McCoy, the bones of the operation. We have Ben, the beer man, Blues Carnes. We have Adrian King, the punk rock queen, who has uh, reemerged and sent me some delightful messages. So uh, thank you, Adrian, for sending me those. We have the Red Red Rain Prosper. We have Amy Hart, the heart of the operation. We have LOL 2.0, which is very funny. We have Eric Andrew Dotson over here. David Poe, 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 Poe. I think I had a couple Poes in there. extra. S.A. Franco. Baffling. Uh, Yvette Wilkins, you're Wilkin on Sunshine. We have Brendan Smith. We have Brian Walter, be nicey to me. No right opinion for you here. Go away. And that bread three that killed my Garski. Thank you so much to our regular listeners of the show. Yes, and we'd also like to thank some irregular listeners. And by that... And by that I mean people who are uh, uh, they're liking us on Facebook. They're they're talking to us uh, on the Twitter. The, you know that kind of that kind of folk. We've got Tony Molina. Thank you so much. We've got Matt Sherman. Thank you, Matt. We've got Dana Ban, Amber Lewis, Edvaldo, Tiotonio, Tiotonio, uh-huh. Susan DiRiquito, Clyde Ivan Demetria, and uh, we'd also like to thank. Le Carvalho, <laughs> as well as Helia Montano da Vida, da da Davas, Davas, Davas. That's the one. If, if you'd like to be a person we shout out on the show that's easy you can do so by contacting us on social media you can find us on facebook.com slash third men twitter at third mencast or on tumblr thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com you can fi- uh, find us on our wordpress page that's the thirdmen.wordpress.com send us an email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com <laughs> beyond break <laughs> writing Okay, in this list we do here, we started just writing in yawn break because I've just I always yawn in the middle of this. I don't know why or how, and I think actually writing it down has made it worse. <laughs> you can uh, find us uh, where we host the show. That's on Pippa. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Pippa, and I, in a lot of ways, because Pippa hosts our show and they've opened up uh, a whole new worlds for us. We are, uh, at the time of this recording, closing in on 25,000 downloads of Kaminsky family production shows since joining Pippa a scant few months ago. Uh, Pippa has really opened things up for us, got us onto Spotify, where you can now find us. Really like to thank the fine folks at Pippa. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, as we've said on the show many times, it is not easy or cheap, but Pippa helps make it that. So, uh, so Pip on down to Pippa. James wins. <laughs> uh, yeah, Pip on down to Pippa. You can search Third Men on YouTube where you can find some really funny uh, animations that uh, James does. I'm working on a new one. Oh. Yeah, so it's, it's in the works. If you're looking to really take a giant crap all over Mungo Jerry, you can do that. If you're looking to be <laughs> one of the one or 200 people who look at and don't react to my, I don't know, 
60 hours worth of work. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of work that we're toiling away at, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. We just spent an hour and a half talking about Sea of Cowards, and we're not done. (laughs) And so if if you listen to that and you'd say, boy, I'd really like to listen to part two, it's up to you. To tell us who else would like to listen to that. We're coming off so, a little aggressive, I think, at this at the end here. I would just say we really re- uh, we rely on you, the listener, to really spread the word about the show, and it's helpful. So please do that. And uh, you know, it takes three seconds to rate, review, and subscribe if you'd like to. So please do. And if you'd like to take three more seconds and give us a listener question, we are still taking those always. Uh, and we, if you ask it, we will answer it in a listener questions specific episode or a segment in which we go over listener questions we'd love to yeah uh, as always thank you to sam kubert and tom valenti for the help with our theme song where the third man as well as Susanna roundtree for the wonderful intros and outros of our program and i think that'll do it paul yeah that'll just about do it now until next week james i will be looking for a home in part two of our sea of cowards extravaganza oh i will be looking for a home under the sea of cowards inside Mm. some sort of bubble civilization with masked men and one woman james is living his eyes wide shut sea of cowards (laughs) tumblr fantasy i believe that the jabberwockies (laughs) (laughs) let's see you next time folks bye For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. One episode in the can. Yeah. Where it belongs. <laughs> I am at a point, I gotta tell you, I'm, I am really at a point with social media where I just want to launch everyone into Ooh. the sun. Including our, our beloved I- Aunt Diane? <laughs> Got a Michelob Ultra. Oh, God. Somebody brought it to Ariel's birthday party. This is literally the first one I've opened. I don't know if you remember this, but in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, Kirk and Dr. Jillian Taylor drink Michelobes at the pizza parlor, and, and Kirk takes one sip and then looks at it and goes... (laughs) <laughs> it's not good it's a friend of ours favorite drink and i 
he brought it, I guess, to have something to drink. I mean, I'm not but above he, a Michelob. It's but just... he left the case here. <laughs> no one thinks, oh, I'll have a Michelob. You know. It's a porch beer. It's fine. <laughs> um... Yeah, no, 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 let's climb into him. Let's <laughs> Like a third ball climbing into a pair of testicles. <laughs> Man, I got nothing. You can't hit me. babies together today five babies Aww. uh and uh much like a, a home depot commercial i bought i brought beers for the dads um so i had a couple of those and in the cigars for the moms <laughs> and and cocaine for the moms <laughs> we were really highball stepping <laughs> um segment of the show that i'm gonna explain now it's when some you're doing you're doing hey you're doing great you're doing god's work um i'm a little bit through my first drink and it hasn't even I, been five minutes <laughs> can i tell you when i was thinking what are we going to do for this skit that was the first thing that came to mind and i thought that's terrible like i'll come up with something better we'll both come up with something better and it never happened we really moistened the mizzen mask there <laughs> oh it's gonna be a ripe one i can tell i just had a shot of rob ball well i'm swirling with some merlot here Listeners out there, Paul's cleaning up a lot of poop. I've just got some chips. Life's good. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show.